So I'd like to welcome to our podcast today an old friend of mine called Tim Avila. Tim's um, got 20 years, actually I think it's 30, but he's keeping quiet about it, experience in discovering, validating and commercializing bioactive ingredients of all kinds. Um, he's referred to by people as a, a super connector because his company, Systems Bioscience, I think works with an astonishing array of people, not just in uh, Southern California where he's based, but from Norway to New Zealand in um, taking bioactive science to market. And um, so he has a phenomenal array of experience within our industry. Thank you. That was a very flattering and almost Austin Powers type of uh, introduction. So it's making me sound like an international man of, of mystery and commercialization. But uh, much appreciated and super happy to be here to talk with you today. No, thank you. Thank you for making the time. Speaking to us from sunny, um, sunny Los Angeles, uh, whereas I'm in rainy old England. So um, we're looking to you today to bring the ray of sunshine and inspiration into our dismal British lives. And I can see, because I can see you on the screen, the rest of you on listening to the podcast can't see it, uh, because Tim is in the United States, he has fantastic American teeth, and he can see that I have really bad brown British teeth, so we're a nice contrast <laughs> here. And I wish that we did have a, a radiant sort of uh, enlightening discussion. I think it will be informative, but I think that the, the topic that we've chosen for today is very serious, and, and indeed... Uh, somber in terms of the realization of what we're up against uh, with the global pandemic and how it relates to agriculture, food, and nutrition, and the difference between food and nutrition. And so we hope to tease that out today. And I'm excited to talk about the why, uh, as well as the what and the so what, and maybe even a little now what uh, conversation. So happy to be here. Tim, what's at the top of your mind? Where do we start, do you think? What's the most important point? I think the most salient point, and I think the one with the most gravity, is that as far as I can tell, we've never had a situation like this as it speaks to food and nutrition and health and medicine. Uh, we often talk about health and nutrition. Uh, some talk about food and nutrition. Uh, but what I'm here today to tell you and your audience is that we are seeing the intersection of communicable and non-communicable disease. So let's take a step back for just a moment. Uh, for a long time, health economists and uh, greater uh, community and public health have been talking about this idea of infectious or communicable disease and the burden that that creates. As a separate thing that we've dealt with a lot in the past, uh, we've had success in dealing with infectious disease what has been then talked about more recently is the massive, even larger burden of non-communicable disease. So principally metabolic syndrome, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, other degenerative and non-communicable disease. And that universe of health uh, economic impact has been rightly described as larger and, and, and of a serious nature. But have we ever had the discussion now where we have the intersection? It's like a, a massive uh, rifle scope. And we are in the crosshairs. And I would say for the first time in my analysis, in my lifetime, and in my nearly 30 years in the industry, has it ever been so clear that we have an intersection between the two? And that's quite alarming. Uh, it should be taken quite seriously. And I think it 
you know, begets this conversation of then why are those two intersected here with this new SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, and the pandemic that has ensued? And I think it's really important for all players, not just in, in health, medicine, public uh, you know, health, but also food and nutrition to seriously look at why are we reaping these consequences right now in this fashion. And for anyone who I suppose hasn't kept up with the data, and that may be some of you, um, looking at some figures from New York State, from Italy, from Spain, the UK, the, the uh, comorbidities of coronavirus, which um, I think certainly the UK figures were about 90% of people who, who died either had one or more of um, obesity, extremely elevated blood pressure, or diabetes, or, or cardiovascular disease. So that's, that's the crosshairs, isn't it, that you're talking about, and those people are the victims in those crosshairs. Absolutely. And I think that it, it begets the conversation about why it affects individuals differently, and why are, are individuals and then groups uh, whether those are racial groups, socioeconomic groups, or others, why does it uh, kill some and not others? And why is there ICU or very serious complications for some and not for others? And that's a fascinating question in terms of exploring the why and then what can be done about that and what has created the backdrop for this. I think if we talk about yeah. some of those issues today, the readers and listeners will find it quite interesting. Now, you talked about individuals. Are you thinking along the lines of something like understanding personalized nutrition better? And I ask that question because although the importance of dealing with obesity and diabetes is now slowly starting to get onto politicians' agenda because of the, in the wake of the crisis, the focus at the moment seems to be very much on kind of blanket population level advice about what to do. So do you mean, do you mean taking a more personalized approach or do you still think that the kind of standard dietary guidelines are the right approach to take, provided everyone actually follows them? Is it just that we haven't been figuring out how to make it easy for people to follow them? I think that's part of it. And I'm glad that you brought it up. It's a great question. And one of my favorite subjects and topics, as you probably well remember, uh, we have to deal with certain universal situations uh, that can apply in these large populations or subsets where we have increased risk because of lifestyle. Uh, but I think it's a matter of priority. And so I think what we'll use today to guide our discussion is universal issues with food and nutrition, then clusterization. So personalization is made up of two parts. I've long held that individualization or N of one, the single person, is quite important. Uh, but it's very, very difficult to get to, and we haven't done that quite well as an industry for economic gain. Uh, but clusterization is really important here to this discussion that we're having today, which is what are the birds of a feather that flock together, and what is the profile and the persona of those, and where do we find increased risk, and why? I can't help but notice that America is in the process of reviewing its dietary guidelines at the moment, and... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I've got the impression that what you're talking about, which is birds of a feather and looking at different groups, doesn't, doesn't seem to be a strong part of what they're doing. So they've, you know, they've done the usual thing of identifying infants, kids, and teens, lactating mothers, but it doesn't seem to go more deeply than that. So what, what is it you're suggesting? Yeah, so I think that that's what we're grappling with still is at that first level of what are universal guidelines and are they actually useful, uh, which sort of 
presupposes the concept that there is one human diet or human template uh, lifestyle that will work for everyone. And we know, of course, that's not the case. However, it, when you look at policy and recommendations coming from the government, clearly we are reaping what we have sown from uh, the idea that eating low fat and uh, replacing that with carbohydrates and sugars and other things has clearly not worked. So that, that experiment has failed, and now there's plenty of voices in the, in the marketplace and in public health. We don't need to rehash them all here, but they certainly describe that we you know, have not uh, achieved the type of metabolic health and the, the public health that we would have liked if those recommendations were spot on. Clearly they were not, and I think that, you know, we'll talk a little bit about that today. In terms of food and nutrition, I always look at it as macro, micro, and phyto. So there's three sort of areas that we can talk about in terms of what are people actually consuming, both from universal recommendation standpoint, and then also clusterization and eventually individualization. So I think it's also important here to talk about what are the, the, the backdrop for people, because you do have you know, individuals that fall across this spectrum. But most of the literature that I've been reading shows that there is a genetic component to your risk for COVID-19. And then there's an epigenetic risk, which is, again, what you can inherit from your parents, and that's literally the exposures and experiences of your forebears, if you will. So genetics and epigenetics are involved. And then, of course, you have the individual and the large population conditions that they're enduring right now. What are they exposed to in terms of environment? And food, of course, is a massive input to that exposure and to that uh, experience and lifestyle uh, that we're seeing. So you really have all three, genetic, epigenetic and current state uh, of, of exposure and what are you feeding on? Yes, people are feeding on too much sugar, some people would say. And in fact, the Dietary Guidelines Committee is keen to um, cut that by nearly half, I think, down to 30 grams a day. Yes, so I think that that is a move in the right direction. And I think that we need to understand that for some people, there might be a, a wider tolerance or carbohydrate intake in general, and it really relates to how uh, sensitive or insensitive they are uh, to insulin and to things like leptin and other things, which we'll talk about relative to COVID-19 risk, which is fascinating insights there. But I think if you look at this idea that um, overall, from a template perspective, a good universal recommendation is to move away from uh, Western-style carbohydrate and sugar consumption. Going back to um, this risk, this intersection of communicable and non-communicable disease, how do we address your, your predisposition or your risk that might be there and, and address it? And so I think the macro is something that we've been talking about. Are there universal, reasonable recommendations on a macronutrition level? Carbohydrate, protein, fat, and so forth. And I think we are at some bit of consensus that, you know, not for everyone, there's not a one template or one pattern fits all, but for most people, if it's causing metabolic signaling disturbances, if you are not eating a diet that helps insulin sensitivity and leptin sensitivity and not contributing to a good metabolic profile, 
then that's something where macros need to be changed. And I think the recommendations are just now starting to come in line with that based on everything that you said uh, in terms of lower carbohydrate diets, higher fat diets being more accepted by these various governmental authorities. So you just talked about macro. You also talked about micro and phyto. Tell me about that. Sure. Uh, so there's been a lot of discussion in the nutrition community, which typically tends towards micronutrients or other nutrients, vitamins, minerals, et cetera. What, what do we see on a micro scale that causes predisposition uh, for this risk? Uh, zinc has been mentioned, vitamin D has been mentioned, ad nauseum, and there are many, many others. Uh, but I think when you look at that, we can all agree that even in the developing world where maybe hunger has been addressed, micronutrition has not really been addressed. So even in the developing world, as well as the Western world where magnesium and potassium insufficiencies and deficiencies have been clearly reported in the literature, vitamin D, uh, zinc, other things, I think we're going to see a real megatrend around micronutrition. So whether it's magnesium and potassium, magnesium to me is a very interesting one that is ripe for food fortification and beverage fortification at a more mainstream level. Uh, we believe that this is going to be a significant uh, trend, perhaps even a mega trend. Uh, vitamin D, zinc, and other things, you can make a case for a lot of micronutrition you know, repletion that we need to do. So I think micro is definitely a part of it. I understand what you're saying, Tim, about the need for these things, but someone has to actually turn them into a product. So is this going to be you know, consumers going buying more supplements based on these, or are they going to pay more attention to whole foods, or is it about fortification? Because you know, one, of, one of the big challenges is scientifically it becomes clear that a micronutrient like zinc or vitamin D3 has a, has a tangible benefit, but actually translating that into consumer motivation is, is the hard part and then into a sort of product that people want to buy. And then of course, a product that companies can actually make money from. So you can make money from selling supplements, but try magnesium fortifying a, a yogurt and see how you get on. You might find it kind of hard to sell. So, so how do you see this playing out in practice? So that's an excellent question because I think that that has held back more mainstream food and beverage brands from uh, addressing this, I think, in a new way. And I think we're seeing technology on the production side to lower cost, but more importantly, to improve facilitation through taste performance and taste profiles for ingredients that can deliver meaningful micronutrition at a cost and use that works for big food and beverage manufacturers. And I happen to be involved in several initiatives uh, in that area, so I think I can feel safe of predicting the future. Uh, by engineering it and working on those. So I think I'm very, very bullish and uh, looking forward to uh, magnesium, potassium, and even a controversial one that bears mentioning, which is that when you get away from a Western diet and sodium chloride or salt reduction, which is on every food and beverage company's radar, it actually turns out that we need sodium. And this is something that the keto dieters and the low-carb people are waking up to now in supplements and other products. And I think we're going to see even sodium be supplemented or fortified in foods apart from chloride, which is a really novel idea. So instead of just putting sodium chloride into a food or beverage, but using sodium gluconate or sodium forms that are not chloride or typical salt, 
and actually increasing the amount of sodium that you need, which is actually uh, a significant necessity in the diet, even at gram amounts, which, you know, is like heresy to the folks that have participated in the salt uh, reduction uh, initiatives. But sodium also is important in this micro area. So, so magnesium, yes, potassium, sodium, very interesting opportunities, and I think part of a mega trend. So to anyone who's listening to you, you are, as you say, speaking heresy. So how can you put their mind at rest that companies aren't going to add more sodium and that's going to result in elevated blood pressure problems for people? You know, Campbell's Soup Company has, is constantly under the hammer from uh, the nutrition community because of the sodium content of its soups. And, and to their credit, actually, they lowered the sodium content every year for 10 years. And the only thing that happened was their sales went down because the taste got worse and their people went off and they bought soups from other people that tasted better because they had more sodium in them. So, you know, for this, this is starting to feel like potentially a no-win situation for, for companies because they know that the sodium brings taste and you know that there's some science that sh shows that sodium in, in one of its forms has some benefits, yet the public health people are saying you've got to take sodium out. So how do you square this, it's not even a circle, square this kind of like octagon that, that you're bringing in there? Yeah, no, I think and it's a great question, and that goes to what I mentioned earlier, which is if you look at mineral nutrition as a megatrend, which I believe it, it definitely will be, is that you then need to have cost inputs and taste inputs that are acceptable to what you're trying to offer your consumers. And I think that only comes with the right technology. So reduction in uh, price to produce the ingredients themselves along with different ingredients. So if you're going to use sodium, you may want to balance that with potassium gluconate or another form of potassium and have potassium play some of the role of making the product taste good in conjunction with sodium other than chloride, not using table salt. No. So you can start to see a way forward where you can get out of this uh, really frustrating you know, thing where you've been put into a round room and told to go stand in the corner. Uh, obviously, <laughs> this is where food companies you know, feel like they, they may be. But I think we have ways out. And I think also the nutrition science will continue to show that sodium has been maligned perhaps unfairly by its association with chloride and sodium chloride specifically. And even sodium chloride is necessary. But at what levels and where do we find a range that makes sense? Too little is clearly not good, but the massive amounts that we were seeing is clearly not good either. We need a little bit of a Goldilocks strategy for sodium chloride as well as sodium, which gets a bad rap. And then, of course, we need to start including potassium and magnesium as well. So just moving on to phytonutrients, Tim, this is this fantastic landscape that you're laying out for us here. What, what, what do you think is going to happen there? It's interesting in the phyto world because we are living in this revolution of plant-based uh, diet uh, uh, popularity. And I think that that's uh, interesting because you can make a case uh, for that on several levels. But what's interesting to me in the phytochemical realm specifically is that uh, if you look at turmeric as an example, and one of its constituents, curcumin, along with other curcuminoids, uh, the consumption of that has increased uh, dramatically. And I think that's important because it's a hallmark or a bellwether of what we need, which is to increase the volume and the diversity 
of these phytochemicals or compounds that come from plants. So while industry is making a massive deal out of plant proteins, and I'm not criticizing that oat and pea and other things may be very uh, important, but to do that on its own may not be a successful long-term strategy. So whether it's meat analogs, cheese analogs, and other things, uh, the real possibility for making an impact in this intersection between communicable and non-communicable disease is to increase the diversity and the volume of phytochemical intake. And that's where the recommendations are coming from, right? Five a day, 10 a day, eat your fruits and veggies. Um, it's not because of some of the macros that you're getting from those things, although it could be, uh, but it's really how rich is the diversity and volume of the phytochemistry that you're consuming. How can this relate to um, the risk for COVID? We'll talk about that, I think, when we get to the end about the now what. But certainly curcumin plays a role in many levels, signaling to our metabolism and to our physiology uh, to improve health and to address some of this risk. So we'll get into that a little bit later. But I, you can see that Fido has a role, and it's really about increasing the diversity and the volume or amount of phytochemistry in the diet. Can I just ask a question, Tim? Um, you mentioned how plant-based diets, we all know how more how they're kind of like top of mind for consumers and for industry. And But you're, you're right, there is an ex extent to which it feels like sometimes the whole plant-based area has been hijacked by people who want to sell the alternative proteins. And that's, that's perfectly valid. And yet, when you look at what consumers do, they're buying lots more things that aren't based on pea protein or soy protein. They're actually buying you know, more ready-made salads. They're buying cauliflower you know based pizza or riced cauliflower they're actually looking for things which are real recognizable plants but just in a more convenient form and i, I think that's almost like a a completely different way of looking plant, plant-based that's more to do with how consumers see it so do you think for companies there's more of an opportunity to make those convenient plant-based products you know, deliver more tangible health benefits. And that's a more interesting area using phytonutrients than going down the alternative protein route, like my cauliflower pizza, but with a decent dose of turmeric built into the recipe for it. You know, you, you could make that yourself at home, as lots of people do. Is, do you think that's a, a greater area of opportunity? I think it's a massive area of opportunity, especially if you can uh, cover two challenges. One is the taste profile, always. Taste always is is number one. So sensory is, is king. Uh, but at the same time, to look at the inherent phytochemistry and whether you can retain a lot of that, even in your cauliflower pizza, uh, and then whether you may or may not add other things to that. It could come from spices. It could come from other areas where you're increasing the phytochemical diversity and volume in products that feel and look more like whole foods. So should people eat more raw produce? Yes, absolutely if it's good for them. And that's something that we you know, talk about with clusters and individuals is that you know, not every single fruit or vegetable might be perfect for you and you have to realize that. But in general, I think there's a, a much ex a more expanding whole food opportunity in this phytochemical area and also with foods that are more convenient uh, but are not simply isolates or uh, plant protein-based you know, foods that we're typically used to seeing. So I think it's a significant opportunity and really moves the dial or the needle on um, 
the health risk that we're talking about with this intersection of, of communicable infectious and non-communicable or metabolic disease. So that's kind of interesting. So plant-based, um, the real the, 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 the real growth opportunity of that trend is about delivering bigger, more effective, better tasting doses of herbs, spices, anything that has got you know, a decent scientific basis for conferring some benefit. And, and we know that that's often the case anyway, because of the traditional usages of things. And you mentioned curcumin, which of course has long been used in India in particular in relation to immunity and, and dealing with cardiovascular health. Okay, so that's, that's kind of interesting. That's a completely different way of looking at plant-based, which often you don't hear. The, for the focus so much is on what can we do with pea protein, that that much bigger area, which actually links to the coronavirus crisis and improving people's health outcomes, that's an area which, which people just haven't given much thought to at the moment. I have to confess, that's not something I've given much thought to either. So that's, that's a really interesting direction, I think, for product developers to take, is how much more how many more herbs and spices can we fit into this product to make it um, make it uh, deliver a benefit to people? Absolutely. And I think your post this morning on LinkedIn was about the attitudes right now because of the pandemic are open to whole food, to natural, to organic. And so we have a more receptive audience. And I think that's because people, you know, they, they intuitively realize that maybe now is a good time to make a change personally or at the family level or whatever, because there is this connection and it's been publicized in the media that the more unhealthy you are, the greater your risk for COVID-19 may well be. Uh, and we know that the answer to that is yes, it does. There is this intersection. So now how do we go about it? So in the context of that, there's tremendous opportunity for um, what I would say are brand owners that would really put out real products that can deliver that. Uh, and to describe it fairly, don't overhype it, and to speak truth in terms of just this is a tasty and convenient way of increasing your whole food and phytochemical-rich uh, plant-based diet. So, Tim, you've used this interesting, and I, I really like it because it's a phrase I haven't heard since I was did science at school, a litmus test <laughs> from the pandemic. Tell us, tell us some more about that. I've had many conversations about the seriousness and the, the tragic consequences of COVID-19, and it's, it's quite, quite somber. And for those that are affected, uh, obviously, we, we recognize that and, and we feel the tragedy for all of humanity. Uh, but this virus is not just a virus. It's a litmus test, uh, and it's a bit of a grim reaper in every way uh, in terms of reaping what we've sown. So this virus is somewhat biblical in its proportions. And we can say that a Bible principle of reaping what you have sown is certainly at work here in terms of, you know, decades upon decades uh, of ill health. So whether that's undernutrition or overnutrition, depending on how you look at it, uh, we've had these consequences. Uh, and so we're seeing that as a litmus test as well as a virus. And so I think then the question becomes, well, what can we do about that? What can I do individually? What can we do in public health? And what can we do in food and nutrition um, to address that? And so I think the first approach, I think, is to recognize, along with some of these governmental bodies that you mentioned, that the diet templates and patterns that we should be looking for should be promoting metabolic health through insulin sensitivity and leptin sensitivity, meaning to actually reduce hyperinsulinemia, which we know contributes 
significant risk to COVID-19 uh, and the response, the reactive physiology to the virus, not even the virus itself, but the reaction to it. And then also the same with leptin or hyperleptinemia, where we need to look at those two particular markers and say, where is lifestyle, but diet in particular contributing to those and how do we get those under control? Yeah, so I'm just going to have to interrupt you for a second there. So you mentioned leptin a couple of times now. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but there's lots of people from the food industry have not encountered it before because it's not, not in the everyday of, of doing things. Um, so can you just quickly explain why leptin is important? Sure. Uh, there was a bit of a um, time in the sun for leptin when it was correlated to obesity. So some people that are familiar with nutrition science uh, know that leptin is a signaling agent that comes from our fat tissue. But what we're now learning is it has tremendous effects in other receptors all over the body, including immunity and lung disease, particularly of the pneumonia type that we're dealing with. And there was a beautiful paper, uh, which I'm happy to provide as a on the list of references for this podcast, uh, from a Dr. Ribello and also a friend, Frank Greenway, at the uh, Pennington Biomedical Research Center at LSU, of looking at the link between obesity and metabolic disease and really difficult problems, even death, with the SARS-CoV-2 virus or COVID-19. So um, that's uh, a very interesting model that's been proposed by these doctors, and it's now being corroborated by other researchers. And so I think you know, yes, is there a link between obesity and diabetes and metabolic syndrome and this risk? Yes, there is. But why? And then if, if, if we can look at some commonalities, then what can we do in terms of both our universal recommendations, but also our clustered and ultimately individual recommendations on how to improve that? So I think this idea of you know, your insulin metabolism and your leptin situation is something for us to really focus in on. And we have to hold people accountable when the types of products or the types of diets that are really causing this, that are causing us to reap what we've sown, we need to change it. Okay. Uh, we can't really kind of talk it away because of, of policy or, or a financial or industrial concerns. Now, when it comes to insulin response, that's you know, reasonably well understood the sorts of carbohydrates that you consume for example have a have an impact on that what what are we talking about from the point of view of a person who's making food choices or a food developer trying to, to create a product what do you have to be aware of in terms of specific foods or nutrients to deal with this leptin question yeah so i think that what's interesting about that is that we're already seeing this take shape in terms of overall carbohydrate reduction and certainly sugar reduction. So that would work for both of those markers, so insulin and leptin sensitivity, and the reduction of hyperinsulinemia and hyperleptinemia. But there are other things, and, and we've seen this in the marketplace, that for um, many decades now, chromium as a, as a micronutrient has been you know, talked about but we don't see a lot of discussion of it right now. <laughs> so you, if you go out into the marketplace, are you seeing fortification with reasonably low cost, non-taste impacting you know, inputs of chromium? I don't see that. It's certainly a, a possibility, but we don't see that on large scale. Let's go to one that we all love and, and, and know, cinnamon. So cinnamon could be provided in terms of what we've been talking about in a very tasty way, 
It can be done uh, low cost. There are many uh, waste streams from the cinnamon oil production that could be contributing to fortification in other foods and beverages that taste fantastic, don't impact the cost of good structure of the product, uh, and can make a wonderful product like we were talking about earlier, where it could be in a more whole food setting, but infused with cinnamon. And even we've even been looking at some beverage concepts recently for that. Uh, there's wonderful things like cinnamon water, which is sort of a waste stream from cinnamon oil production, completely untapped resource, very, very low cost and wonderful taste and nutrient or nutrition uh, profile and possibility. So, so cinnamon would be one on a more whole food side, a chromium and magnesium are ones that are important from the mineral side that address the basic metabolic syndrome issues we're discussing. Cinnamon, that's a, that's a really good, easy, popular choice to make that because it really adds to the flavor of things so much, and it's so much part of traditional cuisine in so many places. I don't know whether you know, but around the Mediterranean, cinnamon's used a lot in, in meat dishes. Um, so you yeah. use it in conjunction with beef and all sorts of other things. So that's a, that's a, a great way for people who are making meals to, to actually bring plant-based benefits, even to something that includes some, some meat. So you can indulge yourself in the meat and also get a few phyto benefits alongside it. Well, I think that's where we go to these epicenters of radical innovation is that you may find someone who comes up with a different type of a meat snack concept and then adding cinnamon and other spices into that. I haven't really seen that yet, but uh, certainly there are products like that out there and, and others who are looking to develop that because we don't necessarily have to have the same teriyaki jerky taste profile that everybody else does, right? <laughs> no. Let's get out there and get a further afield. And, and you mentioned something that's a great concept from international cuisine, which is, you know, what if we bring in cinnamon and turmeric or something into our spice profiles for a meat product or even a non-meat product uh, of the same type where you have a plant-based snack or jerky uh, alternative, but with a lot of spice and phytochemical nutrition added. So uh, there's certainly no lack of intriguing concepts for food and beverage brands to be pursuing. That's fantastic. That sounds very, very encouraging. I look forward to trying all those things out. So what, uh, what comes next, Tim? As you've, you've laid out this beautiful picture of, um, of the, all the areas of, of opportunity that we need to be thinking about to improve diet. What else is in the picture that we need to pay attention to? I think this, the last part of this risk profile and the predisposition is uh, terms that have been used in the nutrition space, certainly in dietary supplements, but as you say, along with leptins, not much discussed in the halls of, of food and beverage companies, and that is the, the idea of oxidation and inflammation. And so how we're going to discuss it today is uh, gross oversimplification, uh, but I can just describe to you that what happens is that if we have a set point of oxidation that is harmful and inflammation that is harmful and it's higher than somebody else and we encounter the virus the reactions to that uh, the cytokine storm which is a term for a big hurricane of these signaling mediators of inflammation and oxidation it can rapidly get out of control and if your set point is higher and already near high alert levels and then you encounter the virus and in your immune system's dysfunction or dysregulation to try to deal with that, now you've just gone from a, a category three all the time. Now you've gone to a category five and you may find yourself 
struggling to breathe or to, to get oxygen in an ICU. And this is something that we really need to look at in terms of what is the lifestyle and diet and nutrition that has been going on for the last 50 years that has now created this grim reaper or litmus test kind of reaction when we've encountered this novel virus. And so it's, it's paramount that we address that. And that's really what we can do with this macro, micro, and phyto approach uh, to making better um, dietary patterns and, and products. And so I think, you know, looking at what's going on there, uh, oxidation and inflammation, um, one of the interesting things that I've seen is that COVID-19 has such a long list of symptoms and syndromes now that it really isn't classically a disease. It's just all over the place in terms of how it can present. And one of the common links is inflammation and oxidation within the lining of blood vessels, organs, other things. Um, this is referred to as endothelial health. So the endothelial cells are in the lining uh, of your blood vessels, organs like the heart, the lungs, and so on and so forth. And so we're seeing significant oxidation out of control, inflammation out of control. I call it in a systems biology world, I call it the oxflam uh, situation. So we need things that are retarding that oxflam uh, situation. How can we retard or resolve those? And, and so there's very specific food and nutrition products um, that can do that. But this mindset is so foreign to, you know, your typical um, mainstream food and beverage or even nutrition approach. We're not really understanding the systems biology and the functional medicine of this. That resides in its little world over here where dietary supplements and other things are used. But I think we're, we're really going to see this intersection and the COVID-19 risk drive a bigger discussion about these issues that you and I have touched on today. And I think it's, it's absolutely necessary or we're gonna to continue to see negative health outcomes and the tragic cost the society, not only in financial terms of COVID-19, uh, but the emotional and social costs that we're seeing. Well, Tim, thank you. That was that's a, a fabulous and inspiring explanation. I have to say, I, have, I, I think I know things about nutrition and health, but I always learn a heck of a lot from listening to you. I always feel like I'm at the feet of the, the great professor when we listen to you. So thank you very much for um, taking the time out of your day to talk to any nutrition business. I hope you enjoy a lovely sunny day in uh, California, and we'll all stagger down to the pub in the rain <laughs> to add to our inflammation. So Try to avoid too many carbs. <laughs> Thank okay. you so much. It was a pleasure. Look forward to another time. I'd love to talk again. Great. Look forward to it. Thanks. <laughs>